You know? There's nothing worse than a piece of kale stuck in your teeth. Protruding, hanging out there, dripping that yellow Italian dressing for everyone to see. Actually, there is one thing worse than kale stuck in your teeth. Not knowing there is kale stuck in your teeth. But a true friend will help you, won't they? A true friend will let you know when there's kale stuck in your teeth. We all need one of those friends. Raise your hand if you are one of those friends. We need you. You are important. If that's you with kale stuck in your teeth, and your friend points it out, it might make you uncomfortable, but it really helps. You see, someone who truly loves you is willing to make you uncomfortable for your good. Today, I got it down now. Thank you. Thank you. Today, we are talking about love, sex, and money. And perhaps it will make us uncomfortable. But I believe that's God loving us. And like a friend, offering to help us in these crucial areas of our lives. Love, sex, and money. That three-headed monster is the topic of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. And so with this passage, the beginning of chapter 13, we round the corner for the final chapter of the book of Hebrews. And, and the tone changes up a bit. Up until this point in the, in the book of Hebrews, there's been these extensive, detailed, theological arguments and applications. That's kind of what the book of Hebrews is famous for. Up until this point, that's what it's been. But then all of a sudden, we turn this corner and it's like the book sprints to the finish and it's like, boom, boom, boom. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to live. And at first it can seem kind of disjointed. How does chapter 13 connect with everything that's led up to this point in the book of Hebrews? I'm convinced that chapter 12, verse 28, is the key. So if you can, if you're able to look it up in your phone or, or, or page Bible in front of you, let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Hebrews 12, 28, this is practically the end of chapter 12. It says, therefore... Stop. Therefore. Therefore looks back on the previous passage which talks about what Jesus has done for us. It's looking back on the work of Jesus. And so this verse is saying, in light of what Jesus has done for us, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. In other words, in light of all that Jesus has done for us, in fact, in light of all that we've covered thus far in the book of Hebrews, the work of Jesus, the complete forgiveness through his death and resurrection, the inward transformation, the the access to God, the rest from working for our salvation in light of all that he's done for us. Our grateful response is worship. Worship. 
That's what it's saying. And then chapter 13 flows right out of that. You see, there weren't originally chapter divisions. Uh, When the author of Hebrews was writing Hebrews, he just wrote it. The divisions were added later. So verse chapter 13 flows out of the end of 12, and it spells out how to worship God acceptably with the way that we live. How to offer God acceptable worship with our entire lives. Because worship does include our lips. It does include our songs of praise, but it also crucially includes our lives. And that includes love, sex, and money. We offer those to God. We let go and say, God, teach me how to live in these areas how you want me to live. Let these areas of my life honor you. If my life is a house, let no door be locked to you. And we let go of our grip. That's part of our worship. And some might say, hey man, the Hebrew Christians were tired. That's what we've been talking about for weeks. The Hebrew Christians were tired. And now you're going to talk about love, sex, and money? You're just going to burden them. I think we have to see. This is not about burdening anyone. This is not about burdening us, but freeing us. As we let go of these areas, God shows us how they were meant to be in the first place. So we not only let go because he simply deserves it, because he's worthy of our entire lives, but also because we trust him. We trust him, and like a good friend pointing out kale in our teeth, he's there to love us. And to help us with these crucial areas of our lives. So as we look now at Hebrews chapter 13 verses 1 through 6, we see what it means to let go of these areas, love, sex, and money. The first is found in verses 1 through 3. Let's take a look. Hebrews 13 verses 1 through 3. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. We might not admit it, but I think we want to control the way we love. Deep down inside, we want to decide who gets it and who doesn't, and how much to give and the way that we give it. Like a traffic controller, we want to tell our love when to stop, when to go ahead, when to speed up, and when to slow down. But when we let go of this area of our lives and say, God, I want to love the way you want me to love, what does it look like? In other words, when we say to God, I want to worship you with the way that I love, How then do we love? This section gives us three specific ways. This is not everything, but it's three main ways we are to love. Number one, brotherly love. Verse one says, let brotherly love continue. It's a a compound word in the original language in the Greek combining philos, meaning love, and adelphia, meaning brothers and sisters. That's how Philadelphia got its name. It speaks of the unique Blood is thicker than water bond 
between brothers and sisters. Essentially, it means love one another like a tight-knit family. And the interesting thing is, this was a brand new concept in the ancient world. Up until this point, this word was only ever used to describe love between actual brothers and sisters. Like literally family. It was never used any other way. And then all of a sudden, early Christians started using it with one another. And it stood out to people watching them. They were like, what's going on here? In fact, one non-Christian writer during this time named Lucian, a little bit later, actually around 150 A.D., wrote about this striking attitude he noticed among Christians. They treat each other as brothers. He says this. This is an, an original account. Moreover, their lawgiver, referring to Jesus, their lawgiver persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise all things equally. In other words, they hold all things loosely and view them as common property, accepting such teachings by tradition and without any precise belief. Commenting on this statement by Lucian, one scholar concluded, Lucian's remarks indicate that an educated person in the second century was quite unprepared for the Christian notion of Philadelphia. The expansion of the term to include men and women beyond the immediate family was considered ludicrous. So let me ask, can we love one another ludicrously? Like true family. I mean, Jesus has already made us family. But how do we live into it? What makes a family a family? I think one primary way is shared life, isn't it? So it's up to us to decide to share life together. And like I said before, we are hungering for community here. And I want to keep hitting on that. I don't want it to be just a one-off thing. We're hungering for community here. And I believe part of the way forward is learning to and deciding to share life together. It's about each of us making a decision to share life with one another. It's saying, I am deciding to share life with other people. So again, I have a specific challenge for us. It's not everything, but did you know that one common definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So if we want more community, we have to do something different. And so, what I'd like to challenge us to do is this week, what I'd like us to do is think of one thing you normally do alone and invite someone else to do it with you. One thing you normally do alone, invite someone else to do it with you. For example, I often run alone. So maybe I could run with someone else. It wouldn't take much for them to run with me. I often walk and pray in the morning with coffee. Maybe I could walk and pray with someone else. Maybe you go to the grocery store alone. Go with somebody else. Bring someone with you. Let's do something even small to remind us to start sharing life together. 
And I know many of us are doing this, but let's do it more. We are called to be true family. And I know it's more than doing things together, but it's got to start somewhere. We've got to build roads into one another's lives. So I'm serious about this. Let's do it. Let's share life together. So, as we let go of love, the first specific way that plays out is Philadelphia. Loving one another like a tight-knit family, sharing life together. Number two is hospitality. Verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Once again, it's a compound word in the original language. It means love plus hospitality. In other words, love for hospitality. Essentially, it means delighting in hospitality, delighting in bringing people in, delighting in making space for others. So I have this funny story about how Lisa and I tried to live in an Airbnb full-time, but then it didn't fall through. And actually, someone, a family from the church took us in, and that's hospitality. But you don't get to hear that story this morning. Because I reread this verse closely, and it says, hospitality to strangers. And I think that's significant. And I know hospitality starts with our attitude. So my question is, what's our attitude towards strangers? Hospitality certainly extends far beyond the walls of the church. But it also includes the walls of the church. So I'll ask, how much are we a welcoming community in the walls of this church? Do we delight in making space for others? You know, when I I came here years ago as a visitor, one of the things I first noticed was the warmth and the friendliness here. But at the same time, let me be real with you. I think we can do more. To help other people feel at home here. So let me encourage each of us to ask, each one of us, starting today, what is one thing I can do differently to make space for others? To not just be hospitable if the opportunity comes to me, if it falls on my lap, but to delight in it. To seek it out. As Romans twelve thirteen says, Seek to show hospitality. In other words, run after it. So Philadelphia, hospitality. And then number three, compassion. Verse three says this. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. This verse speaks of identifying with people who are suffering and thinking if that was me, How would I like to be treated? As if I was in prison. As if I was mistreated. And that kind of guides our response. Are we willing to enter the journey with others? Or do we only want to help from a safe distance? Compassion says, I'm here with you. I'll bear this burden with you. Teach me what it's like. And I'll do my best to listen. You're not a project on a to-do list, but a person on a road whose pain is real. I will walk with you if you let me. I will go as far as you want me. Can you imagine a place where that kind of thing takes place? Can you imagine a place 
characterized by that kind of connection. I mean, this is beautiful. And I believe by the grace of God and the Spirit, uh, the Spirit among us and within us that this is possible, to love like this and to look like Jesus. So we, when we let go of this area of love, three main ways it plays out is Philadelphia, hospitality, and compassion. So that's love. The second area is found in verse 4. Let's read. Chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So the second area is sex, and along with that, marriage. And many people want to manage this area on their own, even Christians. Sometimes we're like, God, you can have every area of my life except this one. Keep out. But when we let go of this area and offer it to God, how does it impact our lives? Two quick things. Two quick things. Number one, it leads us to a high view of marriage. Verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. In other words, it's our job to take marriage seriously, to lift it up. Marriage is often seen in a negative light. I remember when I was excited and, and I told my barber that I was, I was going to get married. I had proposed to Lisa and she said yes. And I remember how he practically pleaded with me to not limit myself to one person. Why would you do that, he said. And even Christians often talk about marriage in a disparaging way. Like, there's my ball and chain or my thorn in the flesh. And even though we can be joking about it, often there's truth in jokes. And so I think what we need and what our society needs and what our youth needs, what our youth needs, is to be captured by how beautiful and powerful marriage can be. To hold it up. And so, I want us to understand that no marriage is perfect. After all, it is two human lives, two imperfect human lives smacked together. But marriage can be truly great when it's actively yielded to God. So married folks, we are called to invest in making our marriages great. Making our marriages shine. So nod your head if you agree that every marriage needs work. Nod your head if you agree that every marriage needs help. Now married folks, I saw a lot of heads nodding. So if you agree to that, I need you to answer this question. Why not get help? If you agree that every marriage needs help, why not get help? Why not read a book? Why not set aside time to talk with one another about how you're doing? Not, honey, here's a list of things I believe you can do better, but how can I do better? Why not reach out to another couple and talk? Why not get counseling? And it can't be because of time and money. That answer will not be accepted. Because you already invest in things far less important than marriage. 
And I think it's important to take the shame out of working on marriage. Like in other areas of life, no one is like, I had to get an oil change in my car today. Or after 15 years, I had to change my hot water heater. Don't tell the church. I don't want anyone to know. Right? Like marriage needs regular maintenance. That's no surprise. And there's no shame. So if you're getting help, let me tell you now, you are not failing. You are winning. Why not get help? Okay, let's keep moving. It leads us to a high view of marriage. It leads us to a high view of sex. Verse 4 goes on. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Some people, even Christians, might think that the Bible has a low view of sex. It's limiting. The narrative out there says that sex happens when you're ready or when you're in love. Don't deny your feelings. But the reality is, that's the low view of sex. It cheapens it. And it exposes our souls to damage. Sex outside of marriage says, I want this feeling from you. I want this intense connection with you, but I don't want to commit to you. Instead, God has the high view of sex. He says it can only take place in one context, marriage. In other words, total commitment between two people. Sex in that context says, I give all of me to you and you alone. God takes sex seriously. In fact, he takes it so seriously that verse 6 says he judges sexual immorality and adultery. He's directly opposed to it. Sexual immorality is a broad term that means any sexual activity apart from the married relationship. It's the Greek word pornos where we get our word pornography. And adultery means adultery. So together, those two terms cover anything sexual before marriage, or if you are married, anything outside of marriage. marriage. God is directly opposed to that. He judges it. And that probably means he allows you to feel the destructive effects, to feel the ruin. He allows you to feel his opposition so that you run from it. That's how serious God takes sex and marriage. He's opposed to anything outside of that. Why would we mess with something that God is opposed to? So when we let go of this area, it leads us to a high view of marriage and a high view of sex. So we've covered love, we've covered sex, and now the third one. Let's look in verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man do to me the final area is money verse 5 says keep your life free from love of money about loving money and and some of you might be thinking i don't have enough money to love it how can i love something that i don't even have but i think it actually cuts both ways 
Because whether you have money or not, and by the way, everyone always thinks that they don't have money, but whether you believe you have money or not, it's the idea that having money will somehow save you. So if you don't have money, it's about getting it. And if you do have money, it's about getting more of it. So you run after it, but it's never enough and it's never secure. Tim Keller, a well-known pastor in New York, notes that when the economic recession hit about a decade ago, there was a surge of, of suicides among America's top CEOs. And the same thing happened with the Great Depression. That's what their hope was set in, and it failed. That's where their love was, and it wasn't enough. And it might be easy for us to say, yeah, that happens with CEOs. You know, those people who have all that money. But we do the same thing. It's so easy to set our hope and our love on money. To look to it as if it will somehow save us. And what that leads to is this gnawing fear around the subject. This obsession with with checking numbers and, and doing math. And always worried about, will there be enough? I know that there's a healthy concern for money, but I'm talking about a gnawing fear. And it also leads to overwork and undergiving. And this verse says, keep your life free from that. But how? What's the antidote? Right after it says this, it says, be content. That's the antidote. Contentment. Okay, be content. But, but then where does this contentment come from? The final part of our passage tells us, for, in other words, because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is where contentment ultimately comes from, knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us. Everything else could fail, but he will always be there no matter what. The one thing that steadies and secures and fulfills our hearts ain't going nowhere. In the original language, there's this rare triple negative in this verse. It's as if he's saying, I will never leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. And the verb here adds to it even more. It speaks of something that has been done in the past but continues to be done. In other words, God, what God has said to them, he continues to say to you. He continues to say to me. He continues to say to us, I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. He says that today. Can you hear him? He's speaking it into your situation. You see, this verse applies to even more than contentment in the area of money, but contentment in the whole realm of life. So what I'd like to do is encourage us to stop and think. And if you're willing, even close your eyes. and Stop and think of One thing in particular that you are wrestling with. One thing that you brought into the room today. It could be something in the present or it could be something 
some unknown thing in the future that has been nagging you. And I want to encourage you to name it in your mind. Be specific. And maybe even take a moment to write it down. But at the very least, name it. One thing. And now keep that in your mind and hear these words from God. I am not putting words in his mouth. This is what he says. I will never leave you or forsake you. Can you hear that? I will never leave you or forsake you. So you can open your eyes. Thank you. Added to that is verse 6. Verse 6 says, the Lord is my helper. Notice that it's not just the Lord is a helper. That would be enough, right? The Lord is my helper. These statements wrap up the whole passage. This actually is what makes the whole shebang possible. You see, we hold on to love, sex, and money as if they can make us okay. I will be okay if if love works out the way I want it. I will be okay if sex works out the way I want it. I will be okay if money works out the way I want it. But they always fail. It is never enough. And instead, God says to us, I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. He is our helper. And he showed us that ultimately by sending his son to die for us so that by believing in him, our deepest need would be met and we would be completely forgiven and at peace with God forever. And that's what makes this possible. This is how we can love, how we can let go and love one another radically. This is how we can let go and say no to sexual temptation. This is how we can let go of our death grip on money. Because he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is our helper. Let's pray. If you're willing, as we pray, I want to invite you to um, open your hands before the Lord. If you're willing, it's just an invitation to open your hands before the Lord as a way of saying, I let go. God, you are worthy, and we by your strength and power, let go of these areas of our lives. You deserve it. And not only that, you are good. Teach us how to live in these areas the way you want us to, God. To be free, God. Teach us how to love, God, the way you want us to love. Teach us how to view the area of sex and marriage the way you want us to, God. And Lord, teach us how to fall out of love with money and how to trust you. And God, I thank you for the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us so we can let go and know that you will be there no matter what. Thank you for being such a good, good, good 
God. You alone are God. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'll invite you to.